I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we are uh, just coming out of a, of a week of incredible opportunities that we had. I'm really grateful to be part of a church that not only talks about going, that not only talks about mission, um, but truly does it in a lot of different ways. And so um, we literally got back, uh, many of us, from, from being out and about and being involved missionally in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the Down Home Ranch in Texas, um, in inner city Dallas, and in Piedras, Mexico. And so what an incredible opportunity for us, but many of you college students that are back a little bit, I mean, you say early, school starts in the, in tomorrow, but... Um, Hopefully, wherever we were, whether we went home for that, whether we were uh, decided to, uh, to spend our week here in Stillwater, no matter where we go, we're living missionally, right? So we don't have to go to Mexico. We don't have to go to inner city Dallas. We don't have to go away at all. That Indeed, what this text is actually going to teach us today, um, mixed in the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ, is that to be a follower of him and to be faithful to him is to be involved missionally in the kingdom. And that's what it means, and it should happen far more naturally and intentionally um, than, we, than we realize. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew 24 again for the last time. And my initial thought when we were first looking at breaking this up was, hey, it's Matthew 24, one of the most complicated chapters in the Bible. Just read through it quickly. Read through it quickly, give a couple of, Jesus is coming back, we don't know when, but... Let's all just be ready and try to be uh, followers of him, and let's kind of leave it at that. And the more that I looked at it, and the more that I said um, that I, uh, I want to break this open and look at the, the specific teaching of this text, the more comfortable I actually felt in looking at it and saying, okay, I know I've never preached this text in this level of intensity, um, but if we're going to go through Matthew and take this long, why rush now, right? I mean, that's kind of one of my thoughts. Why rush now? And so um, I want to ask this question, so how did we get here? Um, this really is going to matter contextually um, for those of you that maybe this is even your first Sunday here or second Sunday here. Um, wow, this is one of those churches that likes to talk about the second coming of Christ because you've just spent three weeks on it. Well, the answer to that is yes and yes. <laughs> we really don't mind talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, but hopefully we're going to do it in a way that lines more up, more, lines uh, more closely with scripture than with just Jim Johnson's fascination with the topic. So we want to know what the scriptures teach about the second coming um, of Jesus Christ. So how did we get here? Matthew 24 could easily be broken into three sections. The first section comes off of the disciples' um, interest in the fascination with the, the buildings that are around the temple. And Jesus says, wow, if you're interested in those stones, I want you to know that a time is coming when not one stone will be left on top of one another. Describing the destruction of the temple and the impending destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And they say, wow, Jesus, so when is that going to happen? What is the sign of your coming? And when will be your second coming? They thought all of those events were lining right on top of one another. And Jesus begins to expound to them in that first lesson that we learned, saying to them, I know you're going to be looking for signs, but as we're going to find out today, since no one's really going to know the date, those signs that you're going to be looking for, earthquakes and famines and all these different things, those things happen all the time. I'm not going to come like that. He points that out. And then at the end of lesson one, he says, so be ready. And we came back last week and we said, hey, let's look at this next section. And not only does he say that life is going to be going on as usual, you, might, you better be ready. Then he goes on and he says, but let me tell you specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem. He talks about it. He gives them some very specific warnings. And you might say, well, okay, well, how does that apply to me? Well, it's good for us to see how God has acted, how God has been faithful in the past, so that we know how to deal with them today. 
So we don't get deceived into believing that God will never hold us accountable. No, we look back and we see other instances where God spoke truth about one day I will hold these people to account. And I don't know about you, but I hear that and I think, okay, so then Jim Johnson better live in light of that. I can't just say, I didn't live a long time ago, therefore I can do what I want. No, in light of the fact that God will not be mocked, in light of the fact that God gives a, a kind of a very clear indication that where there will be a day in which we will be held accountable for the decisions that we make and for the hope that we have in him. And I think those are simultaneous. The decisions that we make and the hope that we have in him. I need to live in light of that. And so we looked last week, and I believe the majority of that, if not the, that entire section, deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and then Jesus being um, enthroned in the heavens and the receiving of Jesus Christ and his vindication um, as being the true son of man. And then we get into today's text, which is him answering the second question. And so what, it's, what is it going to be like at your second coming? which again is one of those topics that so many churches and so many preachers and so many book writers love to discuss because they've got a new way of doing it. They've got a new angle. They've got a new method of interpreting the scriptures. And so let me break that open for you. That's kind of how it goes. How many of you, I really do want to kind of see a show of hands. How many of you have thought about the second coming of Jesus Christ and literally were at some level afraid of that? Remember when you were younger, how many of you have been afraid of the second coming of Jesus Christ? I have too. I've thought about the second coming of Jesus Christ and it has made me afraid to the point that I, if I, if I stopped and thought about it a lot, I thought, okay, this isn't healthy. <laughs> And what's interesting is, is that we've all had that feeling, and, and yet the Bible teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, like you shouldn't be afraid of it. So I'll, I'll just say that I think part of that is my fault, and honestly, part of that are those preachers who tried to scare me. Really, that's, that part of it is their fault. I'll own what's mine, but they got to own what's theirs. Fear. How about this? How many of you have thought about the second coming of Jesus Christ and were just confused? Anybody else just confused? Yeah, totally confused. Which is kind of interesting because the, the Bible actually describes things uh, to bring us hope. When Paul talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ, he actually says in the book of Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another with these words. With what words? Words of confusion? So, so far, two of our most popular responses, fear and confusion, are not designed by the text themselves. I, I think I maybe know where this is coming from. How many of you, and, and, and by the way, this can be a good thing and a bad thing, but how many of you, when you've thought about the second coming of Jesus Christ, instead of going to the Bible, decided to get a book on it? Yeah, that's what we do. I, I got a number of books on it, actually. One of my favorite ones, actually, and it's actually a pretty good book, by A.J. Conyers, entitled The End, What Jesus Really Said About the Last Things. It was actually a rather helpful book, and, and, and you'll be surprised. Guess what he did? He actually just used the words of Jesus. And that was actually a pretty helpful book. Instead of him looking for a formula or trying to take all of these texts and create a system that only he could figure out, you know, because, um, you know, mo most people, I have no idea why, but most people who seem to write these books come from South Texas. Don't know why. I'm just saying they do. Um, everybody in South Texas seems to understand how this works, but they, I get this book, and this book seems to love to take these two ideas, fear and confusion, and bring them together. Um, I, I think this is the other, the third thing, the third response that I've actually had 
which is not biblical, is I, I become obsessed with myself. Like this is where fear comes from. Fear comes from me worrying about me, me worrying about what's gonna happen to me, me thinking about me. Confusion comes to me when I'm spending all of my time trying to figure out by myself, for myself, what's going on. I would say that when you're reading the Bible, if you've got confusion and fear, you would be shocked at how much your view is really focused in just on you. So when you think about the second coming, most of our thoughts, tell me I'm wrong, most of our thoughts have to do with, man, I, I really need to be a better person. I really need to, to try a little harder and have a, a few less bad thoughts and a few more good deeds. Call it good at the end of the day. Well, you, you didn't get that from Scripture. You didn't read the words of Jesus Christ and go, you know what I really should do? I really should try harder to being a better person. This is one of those texts that actually describes what we should do and why we should do it and the second coming of Jesus Christ and what we can know. And, and yet very little of my theology was actually about the second coming of Christ and what to do until he comes back I, did I get from Matthew 24? No, it wasn't. For a long time, it was just John Hagee Ministries. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, John, John Hagee's got some good stuff, not necessarily about the end times, but he's got some good stuff. And, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, Jesus is better, a lot better. So let's look at what Jesus actually said. The first thing Jesus does, and he looks at this, I mean, it's good for us to see um, the, the beginning of this text in verse 36 is where we're picking it up. He begins to say, and now about that day, he's going to be talking about that day, which is one of the reasons why some, 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 some Bible theologians, um, preachers love to look at that maybe he's talking about both events, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and his second coming, and he's kind of mixing up the information. That, that, by the way, is a possible way to interpret Matthew 24. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly going away from that. I'm not saying I won't go back to it someday. I'm slowly coming away from that. My biggest reason for going away from that is actually this particular phrase. Beginning of verse 36, it's like Jesus is now moving to the second point. And if that section that we talked about, the complicated section last week, verses 29 through 31, really is about his enthronement in heaven and the establishment of the church and the gathering of his messengers around the world, establishing the church, then it makes a little bit of sense. But there is a stark contrast that we see here in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, it says, no one knows. So I'm just going to ask you a question in light of the text. Who knows about the second coming of Jesus Christ? According to the Bible, the answer is no one. And so when someone says to you, hey, by the way, I know when he's going to come back, you, you have at least my permission to giggle. Don't point and laugh, but giggle. That's funny. That's funny that you actually think that. You might want to get their name and then add that name to a long list of people who have believed they figured it out. And so far, if you picked a date before today, you've been wrong. Jesus actually makes this statement, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, I'll even meet people or read books that say, listen, it says about that no one will know that day or that hour, but it doesn't say about that year or that time period, in which case you can still giggle. Jesus is drawing attention to a much bigger issue. You want to know when it's going to happen? He actually says no one knows. Notice how he continues to go back 
or, or to, to expand upon this idea. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. <laughs> the angels don't know, the Son doesn't know, only the Father knows. Now, by the way, obviously that's going to lead to a bigger issue. There are some people that love to even come up to pastors in between services and say, hey, by the way, I don't know if it was you, Mrs. Billman, but I think it was you, Mrs. Billman, who came up and said, can you explain this to me? And are you ready? No. She wanted to know, explain to me, could you explain to me, Jim? Can you explain to me how God and Jesus are one? That's your thinking, isn't it? And it's good thinking. How God and Jesus are one, and yet this seems to be something that the Father knows and the Son does not know. I have no idea how that works. I really don't. I do believe that maybe it has something to do with what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that when Jesus, the second part of what we refer to as the Trinity, that God is three in one, but he is one. Okay, he's one. And that's why this text becomes one of those difficult texts that describe Jesus limiting himself. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, although being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. And so he decided to empty himself. And so some scholars believe that this is something that he emptied of himself. I've also heard it said, and I think this is good for us to recognize, that maybe what Jesus is describing is not that he never will know, but at that moment he himself did not know. That not when he returned to heaven or that if he ever said to the father or there was some reuniting of son with father in terms of a oneness of mind, which there always has been in, in part. I mean, it's complicated, right? Do you see this? But Jesus is pointing out in this text that whether it's by him emptying or him self-limiting, that there is something that only the father knows. <laughs> and so exactly how Jesus and God worked that out, I do not know. But the fact that you think you do know or someone else does think they know makes me giggle. But Jesus continues on. Even though nobody knows the day, it is going to look something like this. And he draws an allusion to one of the most popularly discussed ideas of the Bible. There are certain events that just carry with it a weight and one of them is the flood, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So if you want to know what it's going to be like, right before Jesus comes back, just read Genesis 6. Just read what's, what happened in Genesis 6 and you will get a good idea as to what the second coming is going to be like. Which I find fascinating. I don't know if this necessarily gives me an answer, but right now there's a new book that has come out um, describing Adam and the genome. There's a lot of debate about these particular three individuals in history, um, in, in biblical history. One of them is Adam, the other one is Noah, and the other one is Jonah. There is something about these three individuals and maybe the, the magnificent nature of the events that surrounded their lives. I find it fascinating that those three individuals, Adam, Noah, and Jonah, have a lot of questions about the historicity or the reliability of the events surrounding their lives. And yet, Jesus takes Adam and describes in the life of Adam, he actually describes human identity, and particularly the establishment of marriage. 
And he goes back and he, he describes it to um, how God created Adam and Eve and how that worked out. I find it fascinating that something as valuable as marriage is tied to something that we learn in the Genesis formation, the Genesis story of Adam and Eve. We also find that in the Jonah material, this, this amazing story, this almost unbelievable story, this man who is eaten by a fish, we find that Jesus takes some truths about his resurrection and links them back to Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the heart of the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man himself be in the heart of the earth. Hmm. I, I find that interesting. That Jesus ties back not only marriage to Adam and Eve, but also his resurrection, death and resurrection to the story of Jonah. And to the story of Noah, Jesus says, do you remember the story of the flood? Do you remember that story? That, that's, that's what it's going to be like at the second coming. My only point is this, because I don't know if I have like this aha answer for this. I know that these stories are indeed profound and amazing, and I believe them to be true. I would just remind you that as you read these stories, recognize that our deep theological understandings of who God is, is tied to the reliability of these stories. They're not, they don't appear to just come as fables. I know those, by the way, I know parables exist in the Bible. But Jesus takes some pretty deep truths and, and lines them up against these amazing stories found in Scripture. And which one is found to come alongside the story of Noah? The doctrine of his second coming. Which, by the way, a lot of people question. What does he say describing that day? Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So it, basically what he's saying, kind of like earlier in Matthew 24. So if you want to know what it's going to be like right before the second coming, just look back and, and think about the days of Noah. So what, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, I mean, everything was normal. Everything happened as, 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 as normal things happen. People were getting married. People were going on dates. People were starting businesses. People were planting crops. And in the right season, they were actually bringing those crops in. People were just thinking about life. People were waking up and going to bed. This is what life was like. Oh, oh yeah, by the way. And this guy, this other guy was actually building a boat. So what was it like? Oh, you know what? I mean, it was just kind of like every day. Every, I mean, marriages were in trouble. Some marriages were probably um, in so much trouble they were breaking apart and kids were rebelling against their parents. I mean, there was a lot of things that were totally normal back then, just like they are today. Oh, yeah, and by the way, there was this guy and his family that were building an ark. <laughs> Nowhere near water. See, what, what I find interesting is that when you look back at the days of Noah, not only was everyone else, everyone else going on like nothing could ever happen to them. That there would be no day of judgment or reckoning, no day of, of, uh, of giving an account for one's life. There would be no final judgment. No, no, no. No, I'm just going to go on living today just like I lived yesterday and the day before that. Like plan to do that a month from now and a year from now and two years from now. And, 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 and by the way, as that is going on, there is a guy who is building a boat. Almost like he knows something. Do you get that idea? That maybe Noah and his family, like, get something? 
I think that's why Peter, in his letter to the church in Rome, describes the Noah story not just to describe that everyone else seems to be missing the boat. (laughs) But there are those that are building one. That there are those that are missing in and those that are getting, like building one. And Jesus is describing that this is what it's going to be like. They're just going to be completely, look at verse 39. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So so what happens in the day of Noah? They'll be swept away. They'll be literally like destroyed. And then he goes into a statement which kind of um, a lot of uh, second coming books have been written about especially kind of attaching it to the word rapture, which is the Greek word harpazo, meaning to to take out, which does not appear in this text. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other one left. By the way, standing in the field, grinding in the mill, that just means, yeah, they're just going on like normal business day, normal, normal day of everyday life. And what happens? One will be taken and one will be left. See, this is what I find interesting. How many of you, when you hear about the stories of the second coming of Jesus Christ, heard it something like this? Like there will be a, you refer to this word, rapture. There will be this rapture and Jesus Christ will come back. And then those who are who, those who are what? Good or bad will be taken. Come on, you're, you're more Baptist than that. Those who are what? Those who are good will be taken away. And then those who are bad will be left behind, right? That's what the whole left behind series is all about. You don't want to be left behind. One of my favorite preachers, actually, and I I was saddened but wasn't totally surprised, J.D. Greer, um, I love listening to him. Uh, He was preaching recently on the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he he talked about growing up and being so Baptist that one of the things he loved to do with his wife uh, was occasionally when they would be in a conversation late at night, he would just slowly slip out of bed without her knowing, and then he'd kind of like lay on the floor beside the bed. And so in the middle of the night, in terms of their, you know, their conversation, all of a sudden, J.D. is gone. And she's like, honey, honey, where are you? And he'd go, ha, ha, did you think it was the rapture, right? And that's what he, he liked to do. Which, by the way, makes no sense for a, an abundance of reasons, but... Um, the saddest point in my, in my listening to J.D.'s preaching is when he told that story. But uh, listen, here's what I find interesting. Like in the analogy with Noah, the analogy that you see, just again, using the text and not what you've heard from somewhere else. When Jesus is describing those who have been swept away, who was swept away, the good or the bad? Yeah. So in the analogy that Jesus used, particularly here, one will be taken and the other one left. In that instance, it's bad to be taken. Just as in the days of Noah, there'll be those who will be swept away and then those who will remain. I mean, that's the analogy that Jesus is using. I would even be careful trying to build some kind of a, a end times book on just this phrase. Jesus is using a much deeper and a much profound analogy as he is describing that in the days of Noah, all that was going on, there were those who were not prepared and there were those who were. Remember the guy that was building the boat with his family? And then there are those who are swept away in judgment. And then there are those who are rescued. 
And by the way, that's what Jesus is describing that will happen in that day. There will be those who will be swept away in judgment and then those who will be rescued. And so what does Jesus say about that? Interestingly enough, he doesn't say you need to focus more on yourself and be a good boy, be a good girl. He doesn't say, actually, it's really confusing, so don't even bother. And he doesn't say, be afraid. He says, stay awake. Look at verse 42. Therefore, in light of the day that I've just described, and in light of everyone else, the majority of people are going to be eating and drinking. They're going to be marrying and giving in marriage. They are going to be going to work like it is a normal, every other day kind of day. Don't panic. Don't be confused. Don't get obsessed with yourself. Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know. That lines back, right? No one knows, and you do not know. So since you do not know, look at what he does here. I find this fascinating. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, verse 43, but know this. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? You don't know. You don't know when that day is. But by the way, here's what you can know, and that's what the Bible does a lot. The Bible loves to talk about the limitations. The Bible loves to talk about the boundaries or the edges of our understanding or our own experiences. And then comes along and says, but here's what you can know. And Jesus says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not have let his house get broken into. So he's drawing an analogy. He's basically saying, like, if you knew your house was getting broken into tonight, and you knew exactly when it was going to happen, would you do anything about it? Like, if you knew, hear me, if you knew that your house was going to get broken in tonight, would you do anything different? If you knew that this afternoon when you were driving home, you'd have a car accident at the corner of and of, then would you do something different? If you knew, if you knew that tomorrow morning, would you do something different? If you knew that later on this week, would you do something different? If you knew, and the answer to all of those questions is what? Yes. I would so take a different road. I would so take a different path. I would so do a different thing. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming back this afternoon, I mean knew it, how much would you have given in the offering? Everything? Like, you know he's coming back. Would you get it? By the way, I'm not even saying that's the wise thing. But if you know he's coming back, hmm. It's amazing how much our lives change. If, if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back in a year, you knew he had one year, would you do anything different? By the way, Jesus is saying, I think you would. Like, I think you would if you knew at what part of the night See, most of the time I've actually read this text and kind of thought, and then I would be only good right at the last moment. But that's really not what he's describing. What he's describing in this small section here is that you would take the information that you know about his coming and you would live accordingly. And Jesus is saying this. And since you don't, if if your knowledge is not knowing when, see, we do know something about Jesus coming back. How many of you know something about Jesus coming back? I do. And you know what I know? I know I don't know when. And then Jesus says, exactly. (laughs) Now use that information well. What information? The information of not knowing. Oh, I like this. 
I often believe that, that there, there's two things that, that God kind of keeps from us. And it may even be in part a measure of his grace. He keeps from us all of the exact tragedies that are going to come and when they're going to come. I, I think if I knew what my life was going to be like and everything that was going to be given to me, if I knew that much earlier on, I don't know if I could handle it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I could go, I mean, I think I'd be so, I'd be such a mess. And God gives us each day. And I, I, think, I think the idea of not knowing when is truly a, a gift from him. Like I, I think that you think that you would live better or different if you knew exactly when. But that really isn't God's desire for us. God's desire is, for us, is not for us to manipulate the time to make the most of it. No, it's to invest in the time that we have to make the most of it. It's learning to trust in him in between the time to make the most of it. Not to manipulate and exploit it but to invest in it. So Jesus Christ says, stay awake. Look at verse 34. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour that you do not expect. <laughs> this is how Paul says it. There's a, uh, a similar phrase that the Apostle Paul takes, and he's not the only one. John uses it in the Revelation as well. Um, this idea of coming like a thief in the night. The Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, right after he talks about what is known as the rapture or the arpazo of, of, uh, of the people of God um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to go back, you can actually look at it. We're not going to look at the rapture verses. Um, I may kind of break that open on a, on, a, on a Wednesday night sometime in the near future um, or do a podcast on it or something like that. But it's outside the scope of this, uh, this particular lesson. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18 talks about that. And after he's done talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, he goes into a very similar idea that Jesus uses here in Matthew 24. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for me to have written anything to you. You don't need me to tell you anything about the second coming. Why? Because you already know all that needs to be known. I can't tell you anymore. Hence the reason why we don't need more books about it. He says, verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware. Right? You may not know that your coach is going to Champaign, Illinois, but here is something that you can be fully aware of. By the way, a number of years ago, a church in Champaign called me and said, hey, do you want to come here? Andrew and I said, no way, <laughs> for the record. For you yourselves, had to get that in. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's that idea that Jesus just used. If you know he's coming like a thief and you knew when, you'd live accordingly. What does he say here? You yourselves are already fully aware that the day is going to come like a thief in the night, just meaning that we don't know when. While people are saying there is peace and security, because that's, that, that's what people want to do, is they want to, and this is not a good thing, this is not good peace and good security, this is lying. When someone says to you there's nothing to worry about, and their reason is because they tell you that there's nothing to worry about, and they don't have anything deeper than that, or they have like a hope and a better tomorrow, then there's probably something that you should worry about. If someone says there's nothing to worry about, because Jesus Christ, and they begin to talk to you about Jesus or God or his plan or his purposes or his power, I can find peace and security in that. 
But peace and security and peace and security or peace and security and a hopeful tomorrow. I don't have any hope in a hopeful tomorrow. I've just got a tremendous amount of hope in the God who will be there tomorrow. Do you see the difference? So if someone comes along and offers you empty peace and security, look at what Paul says. Then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Like Jesus taught, they'll be swept away. And then he says in verse four, but you are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day for to, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We don't know. It's going to come at a time when we can't know. Therefore, we need to be awake and be prepared. And therefore, those of us who are his children are. I want you to just think about this. Like if you don't know or don't care about Jesus Christ coming back, then there's no ability for you to be prepared. If you don't know or don't care about Jesus Christ ever returning, then there's nothing to prepare for. You don't believe it. You don't care. But Jesus is describing something much deeper than that. Paul is warning of something much bigger than that. This is why any kind of talk about the return of Jesus Christ that leads to confusion or fear or selfishness is not from Scripture. This is why it's it's much better for us. And by the way, there are good books written about the second coming of Christ, but they help this wonderful book that is already given to us. They, 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 they don't, they, they don't, and they don't become, by the way, even when I say help, I don't mean, and they become the filter for me to understand this one. I, I gotta say this because it happens in so many areas, and right now I'm hearing it a lot about a particular movie that I actually went and saw, we did a podcast on it recently, um, called The Shack. And I, I don't want to go into all of it, you can actually listen to our podcast where we discuss it more at length, but here is one thing that does concern me. When someone says, man, I saw this movie, Any kind of event or any kind of experience that gives you a real or a true or a deep understanding of who God is, you should be careful of that. Oh, wait wait a second. So you're telling me the shack helped you understand the love of God, but like the cross and Jesus and the Bible, not so much. Do you see the problem with that? So let me see if I can get that straight. Like Revelation 21 or 22 or Jesus describing what heaven's gonna be like, not so much, but a little boy that happened to go there, that really made it come alive for you. And I would say on any topic, listen, there are, there are things that are wonderful helps, but the Bible, the scriptures, God's revelation to us actually becomes the filter or the guide by which we interpret the other things, not the other way around. So be very careful allowing any experience or any event to become the filter, to become the guide, to become the direction of Scripture. Most likely it's going to lead you down a path that at best is foolish. And a lot of these have to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, where did did I get the idea that I need to be afraid from books other than Scripture? Where did I get the idea that this was confusing? 
from books other than scripture. Well, where did I get the idea that I really needed to be good and stop thinking bad and start doing good? Something other than scripture. Oh. So what does Jesus say to do? What, what does it mean to be awake? Look at verse 45. I love how he describes this. He, he actually, one of the reasons why I'm glad we slowed down and we looked at it because he took it in a direction I wasn't totally prepared for even though I knew this text. Verse 45, he asks the question, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? In essence, who is the one who is awake and is doing what is right, who is feeding the people and caring for the people? Who is that one? And then he goes into verse 46. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so, feeding and caring for his household when he comes. Like verse 45 and 46 actually describe what a faithful person does. They feed and they care for the people of God. That's what it means to be prepared. Wait, it's not about doing good things? Well, it is about doing good things. I was really, when I was looking at this, I wanted to go off a little bit when I was in my preparation. I was thinking a really good application was for me to just go off on, you know, it's not the good that we do. It's not about all the good things that we do. Except I, I knew chapter 25 was coming. <laughs> Have you read Matthew 25? Anthony has. Could you hear him laugh? Matthew 25 is, I think that was you, Anthony. Anthony was describing or thinking through Matthew 25. See, the problem with me going, it's not about the things that you do, is that in Matthew 25, Jesus says that he's going to sort through those who are wicked and those who are lazy and those who are awake and those who are asleep, those who are, and he's going to sort all this through over what? Over people who feed the hungry who give cold water to those who are thirsty, who clothe those who are naked, and who visit those who are in prison. And particularly in Matthew 25, I know this upsets some of us, what Jesus is describing is not the entire world. By the way, it's it's not bad to to clothe and feed and give water and visit um, the the, the difficult and the, the hurting throughout the world. But what Jesus is describing in Matthew 25, the phrase he uses repeatedly is, the least of these brothers of mine. I mean, there's just no way back in those days they could have ever thought, how do we get these items to Haiti? And I do believe that additional responsibility is given to us because we have so much. But Jesus is looking at these disciples of his. You want to know, who, you want to know what a prepared person looks like? They're not around doing good to please God. They're running around and they're doing what I did. Feeding, caring, teaching, Loving, like they're doing like what I did. The more that I looked at this, especially this idea of giving food at the proper time, I began to think about, this is what Jesus talks about quite a bit in being ready for the end. And what it talks about, it talks about quite a bit about what it looks like for the church to be about God's business, feeding and caring for. In Matthew chapter 20, or sorry, in John chapter 21, when Jesus meets Peter again, on the other side of the cross. He says, Peter, do you love me? Well, you know that I love you. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Do you really love me? Okay, you know that, why do you keep saying this? And every time he says, feed, care for, teach, love, right? See, what Jesus is describing here, the people who are prepared are not the people who are minding everything and making sure they're being good because perhaps today 
But those people who get that the kingdom is real, that the king is coming, and they are actively going, gathering, and growing. Not knowing exactly when, but knowing there will be a when. Not knowing exactly how it's going to play out, but in light of how we know that one day it will be, we will spend our lives going and gathering and growing, becoming more like Christ out of a faithful obedience. It is not a working for his reward, but literally working from the reward that he gave us. And Jesus is describing this in very simple fashion. Look at verse 48, no, 47, he says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. This is the idea that if we, if we get that our lives, if we get that every aspect of our lives, not just when we go to Albuquerque, but when we're here at Oklahoma State, not just when we take our family on a mission trip to Down Home Ranch, but realize every time you gather with your kids, something spiritual is about to take place. It's not just when we have an event, you know, we probably should invite the neighbors to that church event. It's recognizing that every time you drive down your cul-de-sac to your, oh, I guess that's my place, to your house at the end of the street, you realize you are driving by people. At best, you don't even know whether or not they do or do not know Christ. I drive around a mission field every day of my life. And if I'm faithful in those small things, he will set me over others. Look at verse 48. But that wicked servant says to himself, so we know the good one is diligently involved in kingdom things, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know. And then by the way, verse 51 is a verse that not a lot of people like. And so they want to just kind of remove it from the Bible. Sorry, Mr. Shaq. Um, not o- not O'Neill. Um, Mr. Young. Verse 51 is actually, interestingly enough, like a verse that there are a number of people recently, and I just, it really bothers me, to be honest with you. Guys like Gunger and guys like William Young, that they just want to try to undo these texts. No, I'm not going to undo it. Verse 51 Probably a verse you did not tell your kids. Jesus Christ is going to come back, and if he's good, he's going to reward you and give you much more to lead over. And if not, he will cut him in pieces and put him in the, with the hypocrites in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, my biggest problem with experiences and books that show us a deeper understanding and appreciation for God or of God is that they're so one-dimensional. Like, what if the truth about God is not just that he is more loving than you know and more caring than you know and more gracious and forgiving than you and I could ever know? What if he is equally righteous and holy and filled with anger and wrath and vengeance? And by the way, that's the God of the Bible if you read it in its entirety. It is all of that. And what is the difference? The difference is how we line up. How we see what he has done for us and how we embrace what he has done for us. In a life freed from trying to be good and instead of living as a result of his goodness. Do you understand the freedom and the joy that comes in being part of his kingdom? 
We sang this in the song, and Rebecca alluded to it in her communion meditation. It says this, Rebecca said this, we have a God that pursues us relentlessly. Really? How many of you hear that, God pursues us relentlessly? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, like he'll love us no matter what. Well, actually, that's not really true. Or if it is, his love, it also involves cutting to pieces and sending to a place where there's a gnashing of teeth. What do you mean by that? Well, you know that he's pursuing us. Okay, you keep saying what you just said. Can I just say, I think a lot of the disconnect, at least in my neighborhood, is maybe my neighbors look at me and go, you keep talking about a God that pursues relentlessly. I just, I don't know if I see you doing that, Jim. See, when Jesus is describing his coming, it is because of his relentless pursuit of his disciples, his relentless pursuit of of those who have rejected him, his relentless pursuit. He even said that those who are faithful are going to be busy about his business, feeding and caring for those people. They're going to be involved in kingdom work, which means that you and I will be not for our salvation, but from the fact that he has already rescued us. That you and I are going to be involved in the relentless pursuit of everyone around us. I didn't need to go to Mexico to figure that out. Read it right here in Matthew 24. I didn't need the shack to point out God's amazing love. Read it right here in Matthew 24. Therefore, I want to end this message just with kind of the way that the parables were used. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. When you look at your life, do you see a kingdom organized, um, centered life, a gospel centered life? Because you know that I don't know exactly when, but I do know when, and therefore I'm treating every day like perhaps today. And not out of fear, but out of out of loyalty, out of out of commitment, out of excitement, out of joy, out of just man, that's just a good investment. Or are you continuing on just like in the days of Noah? Eating, drinking, planning about getting married. Like somehow, God doesn't necessarily exist. I hope that you can hear and find peace. Or if you can't hear, I hope that someday you do hear and find peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and for your kindness to us for mercy that comes in Christ, for the full truth that comes where there is both peace, uh, for those who know the power of the cross and judgment, for those who don't, God, more than anything, for those of us who find peace in this text, may we also find mission for your glory, for the benefit of the church and the world around us, and for our joy. In his name we pray. All God's people said,